0: If you know anything at all about athletics, you know that one of the most important things is to uh, get the fundamentals down. You can have a lot of razzle-dazzle, but uh, you're not going to win many games and you're not going to accomplish very much unless you uh, get the fundamentals learned and uh, you learn how to execute well. And I think that's what Paul has been saying to us in these studies in 1 Corinthians. There are certain bedrock principles, fundamental principles that we need to understand. There are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of frills that we may add to our ministry. There are a lot of good things that we may do. But if we don't have the fundamentals down, we're not going to accomplish what God has called us to do. And uh, we want to see what those first things are. Let's turn again to 1 Corinthians, to the fourth chapter. And we'll continue on in our study in this uh, letter to the church in Corinth. And see in this chapter Paul's description of what what a minister ought to be. Again, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of a minister, but what we tried to establish is that this term applies to anyone in the church that serves in some way in the household of God. It's not a term that's used exclusively for those we would call pastors or vocational Christians, full-time, salaried employees of the church, but it's anyone who serves within the body of Christ. They're ministers. This would include Sunday school teachers, the elders who lead the church, and anyone in a position of of leadership on whatever level God may have called you to serve. So when Paul describes ministers or servants of God, it applies to many of us here in this body of believers. Paul begins in verse 1, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He uses two terms. To describe himself and Apollos and the other servants. He calls them first servants and then stewards of God. The uh, term that he uses for servants here is not the term that's normally used for a servant in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a term that means an under-roar. If you can envision in your mind a picture of one of these Roman galleys with tiers of roars with long sweeps in their hands. That's uh, the sort of picture that Paul is trying to evoke. We're under rowers. We uh, we row to the cadence of the coxswain. The captain determines the pace with which they row, their cadence, and the direction which the boat goes, and we simply row. And that's the way Paul describes his ministry. We're under rowers. I had a good friend years ago who was the uh, coach of the freshman crew Team, or freshman crew, rather in Stanford, and I uh, used to go out early in the morning and watch them train on the bay. About five o'clock in the morning, they'd get up when there was no wind and the bay would be like a sea of glass, and they'd they'd get in those shells, those eight-man shells, and they would race across the the uh, bay. And it was a beautiful thing to watch, as the coxswain would call the cadence, and they'd all row in unison, every man extending himself to the utmost but but uh, rowing in unison with all the other rowers and those long sweeps moving together. It's a beautiful sight. And Paul says that's what it's like to serve the Lord. That's what it means to be a servant. Each man putting in his individual effort but all following the cadence of the Lord. He's the one who determines the speed with which a ministry develops and the direction that he goes. Our responsibility is simply to to follow his count. That's true of all of us, elders, ministers, wherever God has placed us within the church. Our responsibility is to follow him, let him call the cadence to us. Secondly, Paul says, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, a steward in a Roman household was a very much like a butler today. He was responsible for uh, providing food for the family, and he had the keys to the cupboard and where the food was kept, and he brought out the proper foods at the proper time and saw that they were prepared adequately and then served to the people, very much as a steward or stewardess does today on a, a modern aircraft. Paul says that's, that's what we're like. We're just stewards who bring out the good things of God, the mysteries of God. And as we've seen, these mysteries of God, the deep things of God, are the secrets about life. These are the things that teach us how to live in a dog-eat-dog environment out where everyone wants to get your chips. The Bible teaches us how to live there and how to live with an unfaithful spouse and what to do with a rebellious child or a parent who's unyielding and harsh and cruel and inconsistent. The Bible teaches us those things. As we've said over and over again, the Bible doesn't talk about religion. It doesn't tell us how to run a worship service or what sort of garb the clergy should wear. It talks about life and how to live life as as we know we should live it. And Paul says that's our function. We're like stewards in a great house, like butlers who bring out these deep secrets, the lost secrets of humanity, the uh, principles that teach us how to live life in a in a, a whole, wholesome, healthy way. Paul says that's what we do. We're simply servants and stewards. And in this case, that is with regard to a steward, moreover it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. That is what counts is serving as to the Lord. It doesn't matter to me, he says, what you think of me or what the world thinks of me, it doesn't even matter how I evaluate myself. I don't know myself. What matters is how the Lord evaluates me, and that I play the game out to him. He's the coach, and I play it for him. I have a friend who is an assistant coach for a football team on the West Coast, and he coaches the quarterbacks. And I remember hearing him speak one time to a group of men, and he says, one of the hardest things is to get the quarterback to play the game for me, because they want to play it to the sports editors, and they want to play it to the crowd, and the Monday morning quarterbacks, and the people that second-guess them, and think they ought to throw more, or run more, or whatever. And he says, "I, I it's just hard to get these men to listen to me, and me alone. I'm the one that calls the plays, and I'll tell them what to do, and if they'll listen to me, they won't get into trouble. At least that's his assumption, but but it's hard. It's because they want to play the game to the stands and the people who write the articles. And that's what Paul is saying. What matters is that God is the one who evaluates us, and we play the game to him. And Paul says, it's a small thing to me in verse 3 that I should be examined by you. It doesn't matter to him how the church in Corinth views his ministry or evaluates him, or by any human court, that is, any man. In fact, he says, I do not even examine myself, because I don't know my own heart. In fact, he says, I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So he says, it's a very small thing that you criticize me and don't understand me, and and devaluate my ministry. That doesn't matter. doesn't matter how any man looks at me. I don't even scrutinize my own motives because I don't know my heart. The important thing is that God sees and God knows. He knows that I'm faithful in, in rowing according to the Lord's cadence, following Him, and dispensing the good things of God. That's what counts. Therefore, he says in verse 5, do not go on passing judgment on me before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Literally, he says, stop judging, because they were, as we know from our past studies in in this book, they were very critical of Paul and his methods and Felt that he was guilty of duplicity, said one thing and did another thing, and they were very uneasy about him, and so they were very harsh and condemning in their criticism, and Paul says, don't, don't pass judgment on me. God is the one who passes judgment. To do so, he says, is both premature, because it's before the time, and it's presumptuous, because only God sees the heart. You don't see my heart. And there will come a time when we'll stand before the Lord, and the Lord will evaluate my life, not in a harsh and condemning way. And for myself, I've never been very comfortable with this picture of of us as individuals standing before the judgment seat of Christ, and then, as it were, a, a great uh, movie screen opens behind the throne, and, and the, the story of our life is cast on a screen, and everyone sees all of our shame and disgrace, and we hang our heads and walk away in abject depression and shame. It's so contrary to what I know of God. As I understand it, it's more like a private evaluation where the Lord will go through our life and he'll He'll point out the areas where we've missed the point. And I'll say, Lord, now, look at that. Do you remember when I did that? My, wasn't that impressive? And the Lord will say, no, actually, you missed the whole point there. You were thinking of yourself. And uh, you were looking for personal honor and glory, and and you were concerned about how people viewed you and whether you looked good or not. And really, you just missed the whole point. But you remember that time over here when you were so humiliated, and you just felt so discouraged. Now there, you did it right. There, you were counting on me, and look at the results. You didn't see them, but see the results. And I believe that's what the Lord will do. He'll go through our life and he'll evaluate. Everything that we've done, whether it's good or bad, see, as a father would evaluate the work of of his children. And Paul says, then we'll have praise from God. There'll be praiseworthy things, things that we've done in a sense of dependence upon God and without any sense of of self-effort or self-aggrandizement. And Paul says, there you'll receive praise. And you see, we can't judge one another like that because we don't know the heart's. All we can evaluate is, is the external actions, but God sees the heart and so he'll give the proper evaluation at the proper time. So Paul says, don't do it before the time. It's premature. It's presumptuous of you. I was telling the men uh, in the Wednesday morning study a few weeks ago about a story that Howard Hendricks used to tell, a friend of his who was an insurance salesman in Dallas, Texas. And uh, every Christmas... The president of this company used to give away a turkey. And this man was a bachelor, and he never knew what to do with a turkey. He didn't want to bake the thing, and normally he would give it away on this particular occasion. Some of his friends decided they would fix him up, so they stole his turkey, the one that had his name on it. And they made another turkey out of paper mache and they just stuck the neck and the tail of the old turkey in the thing and wound it with butcher paper, and when the president of the company gave the turkey away, that's what the man received. So he got on the streetcar on his way home, and he was looking at this bird, and he was wondering, what in the world am I going to do with this thing? And man came down the aisle of the streetcar, and he was shabbily dressed and obviously down on his luck, and he sat down next to this uh, gentleman with a turkey, and they struck up a conversation, and he found out that he'd been without a job for some time. And he was on his way home, and he only had two dollars in his pocket. He was going to buy some, some uh, ground meat and bring it home, and that would be their Christmas meal. And so the the salesman thought, aha, here's a chance for me to do a good turn. I'll give him the turkey. But then he thought, no, if I give him the turkey, he won't appreciate it. And by the way, this really happened. This is a true story. He said, I'll sell him the turkey for $2, and then he'll value it more highly. And so they made the transaction. The man, of course, was delighted to have this large turkey for only $2, and he got off the Streetcar, and you can imagine him going home and he lays the turkey down in the middle of the table and all the kids gather around there squealing and jumping up and down and he unwraps this thing and here's this dumb bird made out of paper mache And you you know it went through his mind. Same thing would go through my mind and yours. You know, of all the examples of man's inhumanity to man, that has to be the supreme example. A dirty rat of all the no-good men in the world, that's one. But you see, his heart was not to defraud at all. His intentions were perfectly good. And uh, as a matter of fact, when he found out on Monday what had happened, he began to look for that man. He rode that streetcar and he walked the streets where the man had gotten off of the the trolley and he, he looked desperately to find Never found him. And I'm sure to this day, that man points to that event as, as uh, just a terrible thing for a man to do to another man. But he didn't know the man's heart. And that's what Paul is saying. Don't criticize another brother because you don't know his heart. Now, there is a place for evaluation of one another. Paul says if we see another person acting contrary to truth, then we can go and, and as a brother encourage them and lift them up and get them back on the track and minister to their needs and move them along in the right direction. That's proper. But this kind of damning condemnation that we often... Uh, engage in paul says is something we must not do because we cannot see the heart of the man now he continues with his description of of ministers and how they ought to be evaluated in verses 6 through nine now these things brethren i have figuratively applied to myself and apollos for your sakes that is i have used myself and apollos as illustrations for your sakes In other words, what we have said about ourselves applies to you. The illustrations we've used, the descriptions that we've given of our ministries, they apply to you as well. That in us you might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against another. For who regards you as superior, and what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Paul says, I used myself and Apollos as an illustration in order that you may learn not to exceed what is written. That's a reference to the Old Testament. That's what was written. That's all they had. They had very little of the New Testament at this point. They were merely letters circulating from the uh, the apostles, circulating through the churches, But they had the Old Testament, and Paul says if you read the Old Testament and you let your mind run through the examples of the kind of men and women that God uses, you'll see that this principle is true. They were merely servants. That's all. As I said last week, that's the highest word of praise you can receive from God. Well done, good and faithful servant. They were just servants. They weren't wise. They weren't mighty. They weren't powerful in terms of of human estimate. They were just common, ordinary, garden-variety people. Because that's the kind of people that you and I are, and that's the kind of people that God chooses to get the job done. He chooses the weak people of this world to shame the wise. That's Paul's point. And as you read the Old Testament, you'll find that's true. Moses had a speech impediment. And yet that was the man that God chose To confront Pharaoh, the most important politician of his time, and deliver his people. Abraham was a man who never could get his family together. Of all the horrendous husbands, Abraham was one. He lied. He was a failure at much of what he did. But he was a man whose heart was right before God, and God used him, even though he was weak and inept. And there was uh, David who probably was illegitimate and had been discarded and pushed to the background. And Samuel comes to uh, anoint the king and he knows he's to come from the family of Eli and Eli didn't even call him into the house. He was such a disgrace to the family. And he uses men like Gideon, who was the least in in his family and who had the smallest family in Manasseh. And Manasseh was the weakest tribe in Israel. That's the kind of people God chooses. There may be a few wise and mighty and noble, but Paul says if you think through the New Testament, most of them were just common, ordinary people that failed a lot and were very weak. But God saw their hearts. And those are the people that God uses. And then in verse 8, he begins to contrast the condition of the Corinthians with that of the Apostles. And he actually quotes from a, a Stoic poet. The Stoics believe that that we need to assess ourselves realistically and we need to tell ourselves that we're rich and powerful and wealthy. And if we tell ourselves that long enough, we'll believe it. And that's, I have to ask the question, what's new? That's still a very prevalent philosophy. You can actually talk yourself into believing that you have importance and you have power and you're adequate. Paul says, You're already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And that's what the Stoics said. We are kings, we are rich. And would indeed that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. The last event on the card in the amphitheater was the slaves. They were brought into the arena and they were ridiculed and harassed and eventually slain. Made sport of before the people, and Paul says, "That's that's what we apostles are like. We've become a spectacle to the world, like these doomed gladiators. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent. The word means sensible. You always have your wits about you. You're always well controlled." Paul says, "We're very foolish. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished. We are without honor." To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed and roughly treated, the word means to strike with a fist, they've been beaten, and are homeless, and we toil working with our hands. When we are reviled, we bless, when we are persecuted, we endure, when we are slandered, we try to conciliate, we have become as the scum of the world, the dreg of all things until now. You see, the Romans were still thinking along the lines of Greek philosophy and the Greeks were humanists and they felt that the important thing was that a man looked like a man, that he dressed the right way and that he have a certain type of culture, that he be highly educated and never work with his hands. They had slaves to do that sort of thing. A man never got his fingernails dirty. He didn't toil with his hands. And he always had an answer for everything. He was glib. And when he was put down, he always could engage in some clever repartee and put the other person down. That was the concept of man that the Romans had inherited from the Greeks. Paul says, how different we are. We're poorly dressed. We're poverty stricken. We're hungry and thirsty most of the time. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We work with our hands. We're common laborers. Paul was making tents at this time. All of these things that the, that the Roman world felt were important to a man, we were none of these things. He says, we have become as the scum of the world, the dreg of all things, even until now. It's a good thing, I think, to think through occasionally to what extent the world has infected us with their thinking. Because I think even in Christian circles we've bought this line that what makes us powerful and influential is to have achieved a certain level in business. When you're successful in business, then you have something to say to the world and you'll have an impact upon them. or to dress a certain way, or to be highly educated, or to be glib or witty, or to have a certain kind of personality. Those are the things that will enable you to have an impact upon your times, and Paul says, we don't have any of those things. Now, he's not saying these things in themselves are wrong, and that we ought to give them all away if we have them. That's not the point. It's just that they don't matter. Clothes don't matter. Uh, God doesn't put any premium on being shabby, but they just don't matter. That's the point. Having a beautiful home doesn't matter. If you have one, thank God for it. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't make you more powerful. Nor are you any less influential and effective in the world if you don't have it. You see Paul's point? Now, I make two observations out of this paragraph. The first is that doing the will of God does not mean that we will necessarily be successful. There is an error around, I think, in evangelical circles that if if you're just doing the will of God, then you will be successful in business and you'll make lots of money or you'll even pay the bills. Or you'll be elevated in the eyes of men. And that simply is not true. God never promises that, because the payoff is not in this lifetime. The payoff comes later. God may give you success, and he may enable you to accumulate some of the things that the world points to as markers of success, but he may not. He may not. He doesn't have to give you health. Paul, to the end of his days, struggled with a physical ailment. I have a dear friend back in California, Brian Morgan. Who is one of the most godly men that I know? He's a man whose heart from the very beginning from the time he became a Christian, he's been a man who's just gave himself over to the Lord. And his life has been one tragic event after another. He lost two children, just like that, in two years' time. And I look at that and I say, That isn't right, Lord. <laughs> there is no more faithful servant in the world. But you see, the payoff doesn't come in this lifetime, and God never promises that He won't bruise us if we're doing his will. The Lord Jesus was doing the will of the Father. He always did the will of the Father, but it pleased the Lord to bruise him. So what we need to understand is that if we're walking with God, we will not necessarily enjoy success as the world evaluates success in the world. The second thing we need to see is that we do not have to be successful to have an impact upon the world. Paul is saying we just keep plugging away at following the Lord and dispensing the good things of God, and that's really about all we have going for us. We don't have wealth. We don't have position. We're the scum of the earth, he says, in terms of men's, man's evaluation of us. And we need to take that to heart because there are some of us who feel that we have to arrive at a certain position in life before we can have any influence on those around us. I'm you know, just, just a common laborer. When I get to be a shop foreman, then I'll have something to say. Or I'm just a salesman. When I'm a sales manager, then I'll have power and influence on others. Or we think when I can fix my house up a little better or move out of this neighborhood and into a nicer neighborhood, then I'll start having people into my home and start sharing my life with them, see, but not now. Or I have to wait until I replace this sofa and then I can have people over, see, start giving of myself. Because somehow, subtly, we have come to the conclusion that we just need a few things that the world evaluates as success before we'll have any influence on those around us. You ever have the experience of having some neighbor walk in on you when your hair is up in curlers and you're wearing some ratty bathrobe and get gravy stains down the front and you look like something the cat dragged out from the corner? You know, and you feel sort of intimidated and you think, well, What have I got to say to her when I look like this? Doesn't matter. See, Paul doesn't say go out, look like that everywhere you go, please. But like uh I walked into Steve Newman's fraternity uh house one time into his room, and there was the place looked like a bomb had exploded in a mattress factory. I couldn't believe it. There was stuff all over the place. And I said, Man, what a pig pen. And he said, Well, my philosophy is cleanliness is next to godliness, and why go for second best? He said, <coughs> But, uh, you know, there's a modicum of neatness and, and appropriate dress and so forth. But the point is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Those aren't the things that give us power and make us winsome and draw others to us. That's Paul's point. And then in verses 14 through 21, he summarizes in this way, and I'm only going to read these verses and comment on them quickly. Paul says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. In other words, this is a father speaking to you. You're my children. I brought you into the world, so to speak, begat you through the gospel. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Just follow me. Follow the example that I set. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. In other words, this is not something that's culturally conditioned. This is not something that Paul just did in Corinth or said in Corinth. These are principles that are true throughout the church. These words come from an apostle who is an authoritative spokesman for the Lord Jesus. And what I'm saying, he says, is true everywhere. I uh, Over the past few months, whenever I've talked about doing things here, changing things, occasionally someone will say, oh, those are just California ways. Well, maybe some of them are, and I'm trying to shuck as many of them as I can. But uh, our hope is that what we're doing will be biblical and according to what the apostle said and not what they do in Idaho or California or Texas or any other place. Let's just be biblical people and not bound by tradition, but bound by the word of God. That's Paul's point. Let's do it God's way. What I'm saying, I say everywhere in the church, whether we're in Western culture in Greece or we're over in Turkey in an Eastern culture. These are super, super cultural things. That transcend these differences. As God's Word always does. Now, some have become arrogant. He says, As though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist of words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness. In other words, this is a father speaking and I may have to discipline, but I don't want to. When I come, he says, I'm going to look for the distinctive marks of a church who understands, and that is there will be power, not words, because talk is cheap. What I want to look for is that quiet, inexorable power of God that is evident in the lives of people who are counting on God, who believe that it all depends upon God. Not our personalities, not our education, not our physical strength, not our position in society, but God. And when you see that, you see the kingdom of God. You see God exercising his sovereignty on lives and drawing people into his kingdom. And Paul says, that's what I'm going to look for, is that quiet, effective power of God that comes from faith. I was raised in Texas, and uh, we lived for most of our life, in what's called the Cedar Breaks area of North Texas, just in South Dallas County. And our house was up on a little hill, and I could look down uh, to a creek to, uh, I still call it Creek, I'm going to call it Creek one of these days, but it takes me a little while to get into that. Uh, here was this little pump house down there by the creek, and it was a little house that my father had built and. Uh, I remember one day when I was just a little guy, he took me down there and he opened the door and here was this uh, electric motor humming quietly and there were wires coming into this building and all sorts of marvelous things going on in there. And I was really impressed. And he said, now, son, I don't ever want you to get into this building. you see those wires? That carries 220 volts of electricity into that pump. And if you touch those wires, they'll kill you. Stay away from this building. And uh, that sufficiently uh, motivated me to stay away, uh, at least for a year or so, until one day he was gone, and uh, a fuse in the pump went out. And I thought that justified disobedience, because I was there just with my mother, and I was going to go down and repair the damage. I'd seen my father replace the fuses before, and so I went down into this little pump house had a cement floor and about an inch of water on the floor, so it was just a perfect ground, and I was barefooted, and there I was about, I don't know, 10 years old, standing on my bare feet, and I picked up a screwdriver, which fortunately had an insulated handle. If it hadn't, I wouldn't be here today. And I stuck that thing right in between the fuse and the, and the hot wire, and you can imagine what happened. You know, there was this horrendous explosion, and flames shot all over the building, and I staggered backwards, and it had a little low threshold, and I fell over that, and... Uh, my feet hit the ground about 30 seconds later and I way well, I went up to the house carrying this screwdriver which was bent just like a hay fork just yelling at the top of my lungs. And, you know, I learned something very important that there was a lot of power in those wires. I didn't see them. I didn't see that power. It just looked like uh, there was insulation and some brass wire. It didn't look very, uh, very impressive but there was power there. And that's what Paul is saying. That's what I'm going to look for. That quiet power of God in the lives of people who have their roots down in the Lord and his word and they're drawing upon him and they're living lives in the world as the Lord Jesus would live. They're loving and they're gracious and they're giving and they're honest and they're forthright and they're courageous and they display all the characteristics of manhood and womanhood in the world as God intended us to display them. That's what I'm going to look for, Paul says. And that's what God looks for within our membership here. To what extent are we counting on God? To what extent do we believe that it all depends upon Him? Let's stand together, shall we? Father, we thank you for what you are to us. You are what we need. Deliver us from this feeling that we have to have something more. But somehow there's some shortcut that we could take, there's some, something that we could put on or apply in some way that would make us better people and more effective, more powerful. Thank you that we already have everything we need to be what you've called us to be. Teach us to appropriate it, to act upon it, to go out into the world now and display your character because of your power in us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.